This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In October, we celebrate a long-standing association between the garden, the natural and botanical worlds, and the visual arts. In so doing, each week in Arttober, we'll hear from artists about their botanical journeys, processes, and purpose. This week, we're joined by two different artists with two different forms of creative botanical expression. We start out inside with Kate Blairstone, a bold graphic artist and botanical illustrator, designer of botanically inspired wallpapers, textiles, and accessories from Portland, Oregon. In the second half of the program, we head outside as we're joined by Mona Caron, internationally known urban muralist, whose art graces exterior city walls from a few feet high to many, many stories high around the globe. Her visionary work takes tiny, unlikely plant life and makes them the heroes of her art. First, we're joined by Kate via Skype from Portland. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Let's get started with you describing as visually as you can, Kate, the current work that you do and and maybe how you would define or summarize your particular style because it is quite a style. (laughs) Um, Okay. So um, I first, I guess I'll say that the way I kind of um, introduce myself to people is as a botanical illustrator, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that mostly I draw plants. Sometimes there's people and animals in there too, but I tend to explore cultural references instead of scientific ones. And like you said, my work is used to create surface patterns for wallpaper, um, textiles, and branding. I tend to work in a very large scale, um, and that is probably because uh, wallpaper is one of the main applications for it. I build things up in layers. So the way that painters, for example, um, are taught to um, portray roundness, I tend to work or, and think like a printmaker. I tend to work with flatness. Mm-hmm. Um, I build images up in, in layers of color. Um, rather than working with line and texture, I tend to work with flat shapes stacked on top of each other you know, building each component individually and then kind of composing them once I've made them. I draw an individual piece and then I layer them together. Color is really important to me. I think a lot about where plants are from, how they've been depicted in decoration by the people who live amongst those historically, um, and how color and pattern can be used to kind of evoke a really specific place in time and how that connects to identity and and then how that translates to, you know, all that in visual information can be used to communicate what I'm trying to get at in terms of what season it is, what era it is, what what culture we're referencing, um, and and all of that goes into my images. And they are so bright and bold, no matter what your color palette might be, and it ranges. It is never a quiet image. It is always <laughs> a a a flamboyant, larger than life kind of personality in your botanical work. Well, I'm always trying to um, 
for example, I never use white or black, um, you know, the true pigment that way. Um, I'm always pushing any relationship, even if I, even if something is, you know, I'm drawing a white anemone, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying to look for how I can exaggerate the relationships between the lights and the darks. Um, in terms of color, like how, how can I get them to play off each other as much as possible? So instead of a pure white, there's a, you know, I lean more toward blue, maybe, um, instead of a black that, you know, it might lean more towards green, how I can get those colors to vibrate as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and also color is so contextual and is affected so much by, by the light that it's in that I think it's important to try to reflect that in the colors that I use. Hmm. That makes sense. What or who or what place inspired you to be a plant-loving person such that this became your your work and your form of creative expression, Kate? Um, Well, I'm much better at collecting images than stories, um, but I have very specific memories of... um, different places that I've lived and how, how they are different. Um, I grew up in Southern California and chaparral has a specific feeling of the, the light quality and the, you know, crispness of it. Um, and the types of tones used. My grandparents lived in central Oregon, in rural central Oregon. We spent every summer and every winter there, um, which has a very different, you know, high desert quality, a sort of sagebrush, juniper, um, really dramatic skies. And then when I was in high school, we moved to Portland, which has a totally different, very saturated, shaded quality um, Mm. in parts of the year. I've always studied textiles, and I think there was a sort of a natural crossover that I uh, came to after lots of trying to figure out what I wanted to make work about. Plants just, they, you know, because I'm somebody that likes to work from observation rather than you know, coming up with things out of my mind, they were just around, you know, there were things that were easy to, to see and, and observe and study. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also, you know, right about the time we bought our house and, and I started being able to become a gardener in earnest. And, um, you know, I started studying what I wanted to put in my garden and, and going and looking at places where they, those plants lived and seeing what other people, other gardeners were doing and that kind of gardening is one form of collecting and drawing is another. It kind mm-hmm. of is a way to have something that you can't really possess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I love that kind of conversational relationship between your own home garden and the real diversity and wealth of gardening culture in the Portland area as all kind of seed for your graphic work. Yeah. Very early on, I I, I live close to Cistus Nursery mm-hmm. um, and Joy Creek Nursery. Mm-hmm. I go often. What I like about gardens is their potential to be both ground you and where you are like they're really connected to the place where they're located but they also are so transportive and because like you said in Portland we can grow so many different kinds of things you know you can have an argument with a midwestern gardener about what kinds of things are allowed to go together but because our growing season is so long and our climate is relatively mild you know I can I'm allowed to put 
yuccas and hydrangeas together or whatever. <laughs> um, and I, you know, so I can see these strange combinations that have existed from generations of gardeners smashing all this stuff together that's, that's able to flourish in this particular place. Yeah. So describe your home garden. <laughs> Let's see. I have, um, I only currently garden in my backyard. It's, I guess, a normal city lot. The side that's closest to the house is the lush Asian-inspired section, I guess. I have a really big hydrangea, a big loquat that Mm -hmm. is struggling, but I'm getting there. I've heard it takes years to get them to look like they're supposed to look. (laughs) Every year (laughs) it, it snows and they're, you know, the limbs are too heavy and a big branch snaps off and it makes me insane. But, um, and let's see, a big Grevillea Victoria. And that kind of goes into, there's a whole section of Mediterranean and dry stuff. So Mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of a combination, Asian Mediterranean, which I guess really describes my work as well. I think it really does. In the description you gave uh, right before your garden, where you talk about that ability to almost suspend reality and put a hydrangea with an agave. That to me like really brought your work to mind because there is this sense of kind of tropical fantasy contrast brilliance to your work and they are lifelike but not hyper-realistic. So it's very clear when you're looking at an agave or a hydrangea or a grevillea in your work, but you also know that it is an artistic rendition of it. Right. What? But they are all really grounded in my own observation. Yeah. It's what delights me about it. Yeah. So how did you get from that beginning sketching period to determining that you were going to work in this flat graphic mode specifically for things like the repeating pattern of a wallpaper or a textile. Describe describe that process. So I went to school for printmaking, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, wasn't useful right away to me. It was kind of when I was in college, the economy was pretty good and it didn't matter so much to teach you how to work. It was more like how mm-hmm. to make a print, how to accumulate hobbies. I didn't really understand how to be a working artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that kind of meant that I needed to devote my all my time to making work to get to the point where I could understand how to really articulate what I was trying to say. I just picked printmaking because it had this connection to textiles and decorative art. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, all through art, art school, you know, when my work got described as decorative, that's that's not a nice descriptor when you're in art school. Um, <laughs> and the study of traditional women's work was not something that was people cared about at that point. There's a real push for you to be conceptual and challenging and um, to make really big, important work. And I just couldn't figure out how I was going to bridge that gap. I really tried, but it wasn't a good fit for me. So I kind of continued for the next 10 years or so to to do things that made me feel happy because that's what creativity does. At some point, I started drawing more and then drawing only. It was the only thing that I wanted to do. And then at some point, 
plants became the focus of that because I think it was kind of a natural fit. My thesis was about how your decoration informs your identity. Mm-hmm. And I think now I finally, like, in, it took me like 10 years of kind of passively explore, exploring this idea that plants have been used historically for decoration and that surface design is the way to manifest that decoration. And historically, all those different avenues of, you know, embroidery and printmaking and tattooing and all of those things, how those have connected to plants and how we feel about our environment, how we exist in our environment and how that expresses our identity. So now the connection is much more obvious to me. It's like working with recipes. The combination of ingredients determines the the reference. I wish I could say that that little internal permission slip to do the creative work we want to do in the way we want to do it, whether or not it's challenging or I wish I could say that was not as universal as it is, but it is, Kate. Your use of that um, word and that pathway in your life really resonates for me in terms of how so many people feel about gardening, as though Mm -hmm. it's a luxury, as though it's an unnecessary decorative accessory, not this like built-in part of our identity. To put it that way, ignores thousands of years of of art and dedication by cultures other than the predominant male Western one. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that I've come to really is that, you know, what they were trying to push me to do in art school was just the one canon. People have been expressing their identity through these other ways for thousands of years. It's the act of doing it that makes you an artist. Yeah. One that I sent out today was a, there were two prints of roses and one was a tossed floribunda rose. I don't like doing things the traditional way. This floribunda rose was a kind of a large scale, bright red with a white center and big yellow stamens all really different angles so that you could kind of see the play of looking at this these roses which can be such simplistic shapes you know there are five petals with a white center and red petals and it's really important to me to be specific and the other one is a study of david austin rose exploring this idea that how how they kind of glow from within and trying to limit that glow to as few colors as possible Mm -hmm. so there's the the flat shape that is the the whole rose. So say it's a pink coral, one of those ones like Lady of Shalott, there's, you know, they can kind of fade to this light peach, but mm-hmm. then the inside kind of is a really orange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the outside of it, the first layer is a flat pink shape. And then there's another color that's a little bit deeper that or, or more saturated. That's the line of the petals slightly to the interior. And then there's a deeper, more saturated color that describes the glow from within. Hmm. And then the background is this really bright orange and brown Greek key pattern. Hmm. I, you know, I love uh, chinoiserie, one of my favorite kind of mashups. Chinoiserie is kind of a traditional style to look at it through the lens of how did Hollywood Regency do it? How did that affect what the color palette they used in that 60s redoes this traditional mm-hmm. uh, age old style? What are your greatest joys in this art practice that is also your your working living, Kate? 
I think my greatest joy is how connected I feel through the work. I'm going to get kind of emotional. It's important to me that I can look at an antique piece of Japanese pottery and recognize a peony on it and that I can grow that plant in my own garden. It connects me to seasonality and how those things continue to roll on and happen without whether I'm welcoming those changes or kicking and screaming in resistance against them. Um, you know, there's some, there's some huge contentedness that comes with that. I'm a relatively new parent. My, my son is 20 months, I think right now, Mm -hmm. you know, it teaches me so much, you know, how things are outside of my control. So I go through these cycles of consuming as much as I can in, in order to learn how to do something that I don't know how to do or that I've never done. You know, every in my business, every every new project is totally new to me. There's no <laughs> there, there's no sameness, which is what's so wonderful about it. My kid and my work and my home and my garden are, you know, delight me and surprise me all the time. Being that I'm trying to, you know, create in my home garden, um, especially now that I have a child to share it with, you know, I'm trying to create this, this magic for him and knowing that I can call hummingbirds, you know, and butterflies is like, like, that's so magical, you know, Mm -hmm. that I know how to do that. Um, (laughs) That's what I'm trying to capture with my, my personal work. And it is magical. So (laughs) is there anything else you would like to add about about your your work and its pathway and its universal importance beyond me or you <laughs> you know i've I've actually really struggled with this question since since art school, like I said, and um, especially since the election. you know it's hard to make sense of why beauty is important, I think, but it helps to look at the, you know it, it's easier to say it about other people who are doing similar work and you know than to try to describe it about why your own work is important but um i was having this conversation with my friend nathan about the secret garden and you know what a f- wonderful fantasy that is as a child um you know trying to <laughs> you know imagine these magical spaces behind these overgrown hedges which there are so many around here this particular friend of mine is a is a landscape designer and um, you know, does a lot of work in in lots of people's gardens, and he was just joking t- with me about how how much work goes into cultivating that that image. You know mm-hmm. that it's not um, it doesn't happen without our hand in it, really. And that you know, that my job as an artist is to whether or not the viewer sees my hand in it is to reflect some of that magic back to people to, you know, help them see something differently or to exaggerate some quality of it that they couldn't see themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, that's why I do what I do. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Kate. Likewise. Thanks so much. <laughs> Sorry, I cried. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this first in our series on the many expressions of botanical artistry, we started our program hearing from the colorful and bold botanical illustrator, Kate Blairstone. In the second half of our program, we'll be joined by muralist Mona Caron, perhaps best known for her weed series of murals, 
around the world. We'll be right back. Stay with us. And just like that, it's October, or Botanical Arttober here on Cultivating Place. I am fascinated by people's expressions of the botanical in so many facets of their lives, way beyond their gardens and kitchens. Think of their tattoos, their love songs, their needlework, and so many other surface arts. Finials, dishware, cakes of soap, and so much more. I was interested in Kate Blairstone's thesis and her ongoing work exploring how color and pattern can evoke a specific time and place and culture, and how that connects to and helps communicate both cultural and individual identity. I'm well aware of the old adage, show me your garden and I'll tell you who you are. But to expand that to show me how you or your culture represent the botanical world and will know so much more about you, that made me look around at my color choices, at the flowers and foliage rendered in my office curtains, the enormous gourd and nut watercolor painting by my cousin above my office door. What do they say about me? What do they say about this cultural moment? I'm hoping they're signs of hope, not sure. What do you think? Coming up in the second part of the program, we're joined by muralist Mona Caron, whose epic urban murals place the smallest and sometimes most disregarded plants at the center of heroic murals. As she says, you will hear, the thing that truly inspired her was their action, their insistence, their resistance. Now, I'm part of plenty of movements described as the resistance. And this one, my plant and gardening loving friends, holds my whole heart. In it, I truly believe we can redirect our world towards a far better, kinder, bolder, more healthful, beautiful, and just world all the way around. The plants, as always, have so much to teach us. I'm loving Arttober so far, even the cheesy title. How about you? If I follow you on Instagram or Facebook or interact with you about your art in any way, in person or online, please know I wanted to invite you. You know who you are. Over there in England, in Australia, in Japan and Ireland and Africa, in the neighboring town beside mine, in my entire state, my entire country. Your work is beautiful and powerful and meaningful. Keep it up and I will hope to keep adding to this series every year. I have to tell myself, as the saying goes, there will be time, there will be time, but it just feels so urgent, doesn't it? Now, back to the second part of our program when we're joined by Mona Caron. She's gonna start us off with how she got started. Well, um, a number of years ago, I um, started on a project that started as a personal experiment, a personal project, which was that of focusing on some subject matter that previously had been in the background of my mural paintings, meaning the wildflowers usually and wild plants, and turning them into 
not only being in the foreground, but really being the subject and, as you were mentioning, the, the heroes of my paintings. And I started doing this, uh, seeking out a place outdoors in which I would have some calm and quiet. Uh, and those places were rooftops in San Francisco, usually in the various rooftops in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. And I started painting uh, weeds and I didn't really put that much thought into what kind of weed, whatever I found on site, whatever was growing nearby is what I chose as a subject. And I started painting them uh, while photographing um, each centimeter that I was painting. So I basically created stop motion animations of weeds overtaking the city. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I've been a muralist for a, a long time and I, in San Francisco locally, I was known more for very different types of murals telling a neighborhood's history, past, present, and future, lots of narration, lots of detail. But while I was doing those murals that typically used to take me many weeks, sometimes months, I noticed how things changed in the streets I was basically inhabiting. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I started notice, noticing was the cycle of weeds that would sprout up and get killed <laughs> and so these these little flowers and i would always be excited there was one mural i was painting there was a beautiful perfect dandelion that had grown from at the foot of the wall and i was somehow cherishing that little flower in the cement but um it kept getting eradicated. Like people would come and clean the street. And the first thing they would do is would be to eradicate this dandelion flower rather than, you know, perhaps spending greater time with the far worse dirt that exists on the street. And, but it kept coming back. And mm -hmm. I was inspired again by the resilience of this tiny little being, by the fact that you just don't give up, you know? Yeah. And even though, your it was clandestine and without permission, it kept insisting in its own very subtle way, but it kept insisting in its task of breaking through the seemingly invincible cement and reaching the sky, reaching, mm -hmm. uh, reconnecting the earth with the sky and creating a pathway for water to, to connect the two. And despite all odds and despite all of these uh, setbacks, yeah. And so I was inspired to do some tributes to these weeds that were not so much about the intrinsic qualities of each plant. I mean, I'm absolutely aware that many of these weeds are actually medicinal plants. So many of them are edible. They all have wonderful qualities. But the thing that truly inspired me was their action, this insistence, this resistance. That is why I started creating these animations, these stop motion animations to capture this movement that, and to somehow together with the view of the city around the place I was painting, I wanted to create images of these weeds actually growing bigger than the city itself mm. and taking over. Yeah. Oh, so I want to go back a little further before we go forward. Where were you born and raised, and had you ever had a kind of connection to the plant world or natural world prior to this beginning experiment in San Francisco? 
yes, before before I became a muralist, um, spending many, many weeks on urban sidewalks, painting walls and uh, being surrounded by cement, <laughs> I grew up actually in a pretty rural um, and remote place in southern Switzerland. Uh, my parents' house was and is still in a small village, actually outside a small village in Ticino, the Italian part of Switzerland. And the setting was very, very rural. I therefore grew up without too many other children around. The way I would entertain myself as a child was to uh, imagine um, sort of making up stories and imagine inhabiting the woods around me as a tiny little being because I would just imagine myself being one inch tall or two inches tall, and I would just kind of crawl through the woods, imagining myself at that scale, which would turn the tiniest plants into, into the most amazing trees. Oh. <laughs> and every little crack in the, in, in the rocks or in the earth would turn into an amazing cavern. Mm -hmm. And I would just have these epic adventures in, in in magical lands simply by pretending to be very 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 tiny hmm. and strangely enough this this image kind of re-emerged many many years later in on the streets of San Francisco and how did you become a muralist and then what brought you ultimately to San Francisco Mona no it's because I became a muralist by chance uh, through an opportunity to do a mural and so I didn't, it wasn't really planned. <laughs> How did you learn the craft of what you do, just in terms of working at scale and materials? How did you, was it in a, sort of an apprenticeship kind of, a, of an education in this vein? So in San Francisco, I went to art school. I went to the Academy of Art here, and I majored in illustration. I imagined myself mm -hmm. becoming an illustrator of, of books and magazines and things like that. However, before I even graduated, I was asked to create a very large mural. It's still one of my biggest pieces here in San Francisco, a proposal that I initially turned down on the grounds that I didn't know how to do that hmm. because even though I went to art school, nobody taught me how to work in a large scale or how to, yes, to how to work big. And so I just learned by trial and error. I made every mistake you can possibly imagine and I learned from them and I feel like I'm still learning to this day. I'm still learning how to do things. Um, and definitely, I've, over the years, I've become a lot faster and a lot more efficient with what I do, <laughs> but definitely completely self-taught. And when you, how many years ago was it that you did your first plant weed mural? Around 2011, I started doing these, these weeds experiments, these little weed paintings here and there on the rooftops of San Francisco. And were the initial ones, I mean, the way you're describing it, I am seeing them as expressing something just a little bit different, maybe even a little more personal to your journey than your larger commissioned neighborhood pieces. Were the first ones, um, were they clandestine? Were, were they, did you have permission for them or did you just find little places that you could express this new interest? 
Well, since the first weeds were definitely not commissioned work, uh, they were, they all existed and some of them still exist in uh, very hidden places, mm -hmm. unlike the other murals that are in placed in order to be seen by the public. These were actually hidden. They only got captured by my camera and they were done by permission and there i used all of the contacts in the neighborhoods that i had gotten over the years you know like the the local the local mosque let me onto the roof and uh, other some graffiti kids that i know let me um showed me how to get onto certain rooftops that they would hang out in and so um with the help of friends and and of neighbors i was able to to find little hidden nooks where I could experiment on this project. Yeah, and so you, the, the images that I have seen of your work are g widely diverse in their, in their plant life. How do you choose what plant you might put in a given place? And where do you find out your additional information about each plant? Since my primary interest in the in the weeds is not so much their intrinsic quality, but their action of mm -hmm. of insistence and of transgression, um, I would often put more thought in my original weeds project into the location in which I would paint mm -hmm. a weed rather than what the weed itself was. And so, um, in the original series of my weeds project, I chose places that actually exemplify this action of the weeds like a, a place in which alternatives grow a place in which people have found a way of of creating an alternative of breaking through our reality and experiment with something else i often feel like culturally in our society the things that are interesting the things that herald a real change in the world and in society often appear at the margins mm -hmm. and so sometimes perhaps some people might think of them as marginal communities are actually incubator places, places where I see the seedlings of another way. And so, for example, I, you know, I, I found in Barcelona an incredible uh, place called Can, Can Deo, um, a social center that, um, you know, it's a squatted uh, ancient building in which they've created a kind of utopia <laughs> or another such so social center in Exarchia, in, in, in Greece, in Athens, or a, a community center in the middle of the biggest slum of, of Amnabad, Amnabad in Gujarat, India. And so those are places that despite hardship and despite all odds, people are creating beauty and experimenting with a different way and doing things that are not that lie outside the greater society's plans and are perhaps do not follow the order of things and yet you find these plants and so once you have found this very meaningful location something leads you to choose the specific plant for the place as well. And I know um, from from my own research and, and homework on your work that it isn't necessarily the botanical aspects of, of the image that are most compelling to you, but you almost always have the Latin name of the plant and you have some sense of its 
you have a very strong sense of its morphology, meaning the way it looks, its proportions, its botanical parts. And I'm really taken with not I'm really taken with them, not because they are botanical illustration, but because in this way that you depict them, there is this layered, sometimes maybe also subversive messaging of the difference between a plant and its power, a place. They are really botanically resonant as well as culturally and visually resonant. Yes, one I often use a Latin name to to title these pieces because I feel it's very neutral and because a lot of these plants, precisely the weeds, are often invasive species that are they are international plants. Wherever I travel I find them. I walk the streets of Sao Paulo and I go, Oh, there's my old friend. I've seen <laughs> you in Europe, you know. <laughs> and so it's it's these plants, you know, are a product of globalization. They are everywhere, many of them. Mm. And so uh, the Latin name is just an attempt to choose a name that's actually speci not specific to the particular country I'm finding them in. And often they are chosen for their proximity to the mural location. Mm more more than anything of course i then enjoy learning more about the plant or knowing more about the plant and there is something in my background which i'm already inclined to do so which is that i come from a long line of plant people <laughs> through my mother and my grandfather who was a botanical illustrator and knew every every little wild herb of switzerland by name both common and latin mm. um I've grown up being taught plants, um, but uh, again, this weeds project is something slightly uh, derivative from that, but not exactly that same type of work. Yeah, and you use the word weeds, um, but sometimes they are invasive and sometimes they are native wildflowers. I'm thinking, for yes. instance, of um, a beautiful fiddle neck that you did in uh, in California on a wall. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that that one. Um, yes, uh, the this example of the fiddle neck that I painted in Union City, California, that was also chosen for its proximity to the wall, but also because it was actually the only plant, the only living being that I saw um, sprouting in that place. That particular place has an interesting story, which was that um, the building that the plant was painted on was built on a Superfund site. It was a territory that was very massively polluted and it underwent a massive a cleanup effort, massive re restoration in which they, uh, in which they excavated up to 20 feet, mm. all of the topsoil and up to 20 feet of the earth there. So basically, by the time I got there, it was a lunar landscape where nothing was growing, and I looked around. First of all, there was no neighborhood to take inspiration from. There was no community there. Secondly, there was nothing growing there at all except for blades of grass. And I scoured the earth and I found the first blooming um, plant that I could find there. 
was this little fiddle neck that was growing and I thought okay you're going to be the hero of this of this mural hmm. and ultimately the building that it went on talk a little bit about the community who who became who for whom this became home so that particular project was um a, a public art project that I did want to relate with with the community that was going to inhabit that brand new building. As I was painting the mural, they started moving in. Lots and lots of people, primarily immigrants, many of them from Afghanistan, many from the Middle and the Far East, some Asian, and um, a few local people as well, but that was definitely the minority. So it was a very, very diverse and sundry assortment of people who often didn't really speak the same language as each other. And I thought, well, that's one thing that they all have in common is just like the seed that was brought by the wind that caused this little wildflower to grow. They too came from far and wide, almost blown by the wind, and for so many reason, reasons, some some of the reasons very heavy, they settled here, and are now starting a new life. And it, I felt that that was the origin, the the root of the concept of me putting a plant there. So I literally wanted the roots of the plant to be touched and contributed to by the people that were living at this location. So I asked many of the people I got to know whether they would be so kind as to write welcoming phrases into the roots and have the calligraphy of those words feed into the roots of this giant wildflower. And it was a great fun process because people actually got to meet each other that way. It's one of the beautiful things of doing murals, public murals and murals in public spaces. It is an opportunity for people, passersby, neighbors, to actually connect with each other. And so that's what, what we did in that particular project. Yeah. So the original Weed series, was there a set number of the series that you were going to do at the outset and how many have you done so far Ooh, i actually don't know how many weeds i've painted so far i i'm bad at counting my own pieces <laughs> but um the original weed series was consisted of paintings that were relatively small compared to what happened later in my in my career here but they were the ones that i did as stop motion animations. So the ones that you can see in a video that I produced moving, so mm -hmm. growing over the city. Yeah. And there may be a dozen or so. And later on, however, when I when I create a little video and I put it on YouTube, miraculously it was seen by a good number of people. And I started receiving feedback from all over the world, like realizing that this metaphor, this metaphor of, of resilience and resistance didn't need any language. I got mail from, from Asia. I got mail in Arabic from Iraq, somebody in Baghdad who was sending me a picture of a weed that he had found in the streets of Baghdad. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's in Russian. Um, I mean, from all over the place, mm -hmm. I was I was getting people sending me their own cell phone photos of of weeds growing mir miraculously in the crack of 
the sidewalk. I also started getting him invited to more faraway places to do uh, such weed murals. Mm-hmm. And as that happened, they became progressively larger, which was very fun because that gave me an opportunity to really depict them in the very same way that I used to imagine them when I was a child <laughs> roaming the woods in, in Switzerland, which is being very small and looking at these weeds, seedlings as being huge. And so I paint these plants from a perspective from below. I paint them in a perspective that emulates what they would look like if they really were that big and towering over you. And so putting them in the right proportion, the things that are invisible, the things that we step on, suddenly become something that you have to respect. Yeah. And I I don't actually depict these weeds, I don't actually depict my plants super realistically. I actually don't consider them extremely accurate botanical illustrations. I definitely use artistic license in order to give them a little extra muscle. <laughs> I give them a little bit of a gesture to, and I feel their their design and their gesture almost as if it were a dance move and one that's twisting, one that's striving, one that's pushed upwards with some level of power mm-hmm. because that's, I would like to invert the power uh, relations there a little bit. The stop animation ones, you would do the base sketch and painting and then you would do subsequent levels of painting over. I'm thinking of one in particular that is the dandelion with the stalk coming up out of the basil rosette of leaves and then it's in bud and then it opens into full bloom. About how many phases were there in that stop animation weed uh, illust- stop animation weed mural um, in those original ones, Mona? So, for example, that dandelion took four days to do. And it's interesting because it is very different from time lapse, right? Because if I, time lapse is when you simply set up a camera and you see the artist completing a painting. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's very different, firstly, because I'm not in the picture, of course. I step out of the picture every time to take a photo. But mostly, I don't paint the plant the way I would if the goal was simply to paint a plant, uh, a dandelion. Mm-hmm. So I painted it uh, starting from the bottom, from the rosette, as you were saying, and inch by inch, I would keep painting upwards in a way that's not really realistic growing because another thing that I was trying to accomplish is to never having to erase anything mm-hmm. so as to keep the weather texture of the background. I would simply have this hybrid of a painting growing and a plant growing (laughs) to give the impression of growth. So describe your most recent piece. I feel that my, my large, huge weeds speak in their visual context with the cityscape that they, that they're in. Part of the painting or the image, I'd say, is really the environment. So I tried to place a weed in the concrete jungle, and that is really the effect. That's how they actually speak. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of the the, the meaning of, of these plants is really 
contained by their location and by their visual context all around the parts the things that i do not paint the things that are already there mm. however in last year i started shifting a little bit and i felt like i wanted to start bringing back a little bit of the context and the contrasts that are usually implied in my weeds paintings and bring them back in a surreal way into the painting again so last year i did a collaboration with amazing artist leaken in spain in which i was able to start doing that once again a plant but it is actually growing out of a sort of dystopian technological landscape and there's little people literally climbing the stalks and having a bonfire in the middle of the flower of the plant in which there's diverse group of people having direct conversations with one another and listening to one another. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way in which I've started showing a transformation from what's at the bottom and what the plants are breaking through and and bringing forth in taiwan later i did a similar piece where there are three or four healing plants um, they could be weeds or they can also be garden flowers but what they have in common is that they are, have healing properties each one comes from a different continent but they're all growing from a disturbed environment, literally disturbed environment represented as a very polluted city with a lot of problems towering over it, <laughs> sort of represented in the form of our fossil fuel industry, of rockets, there's all sorts of things there that seem to be very, very oppressive. And at the very bottom of the painting, very small, you can see grouplets of people getting together for doing small things that might help very drops in the bucket very small actions but just an action that is the beginning of another way the beginning of an alternative way of living and in those tiny little spots gigantic healing plants grow push through these uh, oppressive things in the painting and reach a clear sky 15 stories higher up <laughs> <laughs> And give me an example of some of the healing plants you've painted in, in that. Well, one is a very famous one is the Echinacea, Echinacea. Mm -hmm. Another one is an Agastache Mexicana. Mm. Um, a Leontis Leonurus lionflower is in there, as well as a safflower, which is a popular Chinese medicine herb. Yeah. I, I just wanted to mention that um, I think it's, it's great that I'm being interviewed by a radio program that very much focuses on gardening because these plants that I'm painting are precisely not garden plants. It's it's really it's the plants that grow without permission. They grow outside of of flower beds. The all the things that were not part of our plan. The things that grow where we don't want them because what makes weed a weed a weed is just any plant that's growing without permission where we don't want them mm. and um so my my goal there is really to cultivate a type of sensitivity that looks and sees beauty even in things that do not have for example monetary value or things that are just not uh cherished it is, it's really cultivating a certain type of sensitivity and also the real use of the human eye with an open heart. Mm. Because 
we know a rose is beautiful because we pay a lot of money to buy them. Like we've been told that roses are beautiful. They are available in stores and have value for that reason. However, it actually takes your open heart and your open eye to see how any bit of nature is gorgeous if you take the time to look at it, even in places you were not taught to look Hmm. and see what is there. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. God bless the weeds and the wildflowers. They're going to save us, Mona. (laughs) Mona Carone is an internationally known urban muralist whose art graces exterior city walls from a few feet tall to many, many stories high in cities around the world. Her visionary work takes tiny, unlikely plant life and makes them her visual heroes. Kate Blairstone, the artist we heard from at the beginning of the program, is a bold graphic artist and botanical illustrator, designer of botanically inspired wallpapers, textiles, and accessories from Portland, Oregon. Join us again next week when we continue our conversations with artists inspired by the botanical world, when we speak with Obi Kaufman, author and illustrator of the California Field Atlas. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos of the work of Kate Blairstone and Mona Caron, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.